Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Writer George Saunders joins us now. His new book is called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain and takes a close look at seven classic 19th century Russian short stories that grew out of a class he's taught for a long time now on Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, and Gogol as a creative writing professor at Syracuse University. He also, in the book, approaches the work with a writer's curiosity, and I'm quoting him, the aim of this book is mainly diagnostic, he writes. If a story drew us in, kept us reading, made us feel respected, how did it do that? And it's a kind of master class, really, and uh, from a masterful writer and a writer whom I have a great deal of personal admiration for. And George, good to have you back on Forum. Welcome. Hi, Michael. Good to be with you again. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing okay, considering this pandemic and all the rest of it. Uh, in fact, I was going to ask you, before we get into this new book of yours, and, and talk about literature, which we've both uh, been in the vineyards teaching for decades, um, uh, why it affects us and why it's necessary and important and what you're doing with all these great Russian writers. I want to ask you about politics uh, because we've just made a changing of the guard and it used to be almost de rigueur to ask different fiction writers and novelists uh, to opine on political things of one sort or another. Uh, we've somewhat, I think, forsaken that, maybe more than we should, but you've also written a great deal about politics, written about Trump and uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the changing of this administration from Trump to Biden? Just happy. <laughs> just happy. Uh, I think I'm also kind of um, just watching to see what those uh, 74 million Trump voters do next. That's, uh, I, I know a lot of them, not, not 74 million, but I know a good number. And I'm just, I think that's really where this, uh, you know, the future lies. And if we're talking about unity, what's going to happen to that group of people? And um, can, you know, to be honest, I think the goal is to somehow uh, bring them back into the, uh, the fold of, of reasonable politics. And um, so, so as, as a writer, I'm just interested in how we got to that point of division and how, uh, how, how we might be able to reconfigure things. And I was thinking, you know, a little bit of a, I've been taking some comfort in this metaphor. If you took a, a, a baseball stadium and filled it with 20,000 Americans, Democrats and Republicans, and let somebody like Trump get up there and agitate and fabricate and, and all that stuff, uh, you'd and let's say he talked about immigration. Pretty soon you have fights breaking out, as we as we have for the last four years. But weirdly, if you took the same people and had the Red Sox and the Yankees run out, everything would shift. There's a different conversation going on. It's a little more genial, although maybe not that much more, given those two teams. But in other words, there, there's a possibility here for us to shift the binary a little bit and to not maybe maybe wean ourselves from the habit of polarization, uh, wean ourselves to the habit of always assuming that politics means these three or four items about which we already know where we stand and to try to um, 
reimagine our identity so that the so that the conversation is more productive and genial. And I think that you know I feel that happen all the time personally. You know, with friends of mine who are Trump supporters, we get off the familiar axis and suddenly we're uh, we're finding depths to us and affection that we didn't have before. So that's kind of where I'm trying to put my mind and my intention right now. Yeah, I'm interested in where this will lead you, um, often leads you to wanting to do things uh, that reflect the kind of good nature and kindness uh, that I've always identified as being inherent in your DNA. And uh, I hope you can find some ways uh, that will lift because many people certainly respect you and what you have to say. And uh, brings us down to maybe the values also of what people can find in literature, uh, which has become devalued. In fact, the truth has become devalued in the last four years, I think, to a great extent, as you and others have commented. And so uh, the teaching of literature for you and for me has been kind of a lifetime commitment. And certainly it brings knowledge, but it also alters consciousness. It, alter, it, it makes for better citizenship potentially, too, doesn't it, as you say in your new book? Yeah, that's beautifully put. It alters consciousness. And one of the, the starting points for, for this book is to say, you know, when I hand you a, a nine-page story from Chekhov, before you start, you've got kind of a blank, relatively blank mind. You have no opinions about it. And from the very first paragraph, your mind is inflected in some, you know, in usually some very small way. That's actually the whole drill of, of reading literature. It's just the inflection of the mind. And you could say that the whole drill of criticism is the person noting the inflection of her mind blessing it and then trying to articulate it and the, for me the thrilling part is that really is a scale model for everything that we do you know if you go out into the world you you uh some phenomenon falls into your mind you bless that reaction and then you try to articulate it so i think the the whole process of of uh familiarizing yourself with the text is to watch your the ways in which your own mind can be altered and specifically with these russians they seem to at least when I read them, they remind me that my first draft thinking is habitual and not that deep. You know, you see somebody and you go, oh, I know that guy. Uh, then in these stories, you it's as if you, you know, you, you saw somebody, you made a snap judgment, then you turned on your heels and started following that person down the street and even got the opportunity to jump into their mind and see what they're thinking. Uh, by the end of the story, it's you're almost you're an identity with it. You are that person, essentially. And just that little, you know, kind of playful mental exercise, I think, is really helpful for us. And I think even uh, neurologists are finding that it's very important uh, that that act of empathy is actually physically healing for your for your mind and your body. Well, why the Russian writers? Uh, I mean, I ask that question with all due respect to the fact that you're talking about writers who are unquestionably great writers uh, and who have certainly turn many minds and hearts around. Um, and, but I say Russian writers uh, uh, specifically because, of course, you're working with translation. But in addition to that, um, I'm thinking about a story you may know by Grace Paley called Conversation with My Father, where she reads him a story yeah. that she writes. And he says, uh, you know, this, is, this doesn't have the doom in it uh, that, that, she, that he gets from Russian writing. In other words, <laughs> there's more of that tragic sensibility that we identify with Russian literature, and particularly many of these writers that you deal with, like Turgenev and yeah. Gogol, although they, they used to say all Russian writers are under Gogol's coat, didn't they? Uh, his story, The Overcoat. Yes. But, I'm, I'm, you know, that difference between a tragic view as opposed to maybe an American view or a non-Russian view, which is not as tragic. Yeah, and that's a beautiful story, that Grace Paley. I'm glad you reminded me of that. Um, you know, for, honestly, I mean, as a fellow teacher, I can I can be frank with you. I um, kind of stumbled into these Russians back when I was I was an engineer. 
I'd written a first book and I got asked by Syracuse to come teach. Uh, so the workshop part of it I could handle, but I also had to teach this thing called a forms course, which is, you know, 20 or 30 of these incredibly talented young students. And the the purpose of the forms course is to use literature as a kind of a focal point for talking about craft. So, so I, you know, I'm very spottily educated. I was an engineer and all over the place. So I had just been reading some Tolstoy and I thought, okay, I'll do that. I'll, I'll teach the Russians. Uh, as I remember, I put some stories on the syllabus I hadn't even read yet, just so I could could read them. So I just stumbled into it very pragmatically, and then that class went well, and I found out that I um George, forgive me, hold that thought because I we're coming up imagine. on a break, and the break doesn't start sure. for anyone. And George sure. was a geophysical engineer working in mining, the only Booker Award, book award winner, I think, uh, recipient who has a background in mining uh, engineering. Join us with George Saunders, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. Our guest is George Saunders, Booker recipient and also recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and talking about his new book, which is called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And if you have questions for him, you can give us a call now. And I have some questions that you may indeed, as listeners, want to respond to. What makes for a great short story masterpiece? Uh, it's always a question that's hovered in my mind because I teach short fiction and have for many years. Uh, did a whole thing for the teaching company on short story masterpieces and wrestled with that whole idea of what is a short story masterpiece. Uh, you may want to put in uh, certainly uh, your own nomination, so to speak, uh, and the stories that George selects here are indeed in that category. But also we're talking with him about craft and talking about the effect of reading on us. Uh, a lot of people think it has effect of empathy and increasing our empathy and that is an ongoing discussion and controversy in itself but how does it expand our horizons what does reading do to you and for you and some of you who are aspiring writers or want to find out more about the craft of writing you learn a lot from george who is a master as i said and you may want to indeed join us if you have questions or if you have comments you can join us also by getting in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email us Forum at kqed.org. And sorry we had to go to that break, George. You were in the middle of talking about the genesis of your teaching Russian writers. Right. So really, it just was sort of chance at first. And then over the years, uh, I kept teaching the course over and over over the 20 years I've been at Syracuse. And, uh, you know, as you know, the certain uh, stories and certain approaches just pop in a classroom and others don't for who knows why. So over the years, I knew there were about 15 stories that I could, uh, you know, the week before I taught them, I was kind of gleefully just waiting because I knew the kids would love them. Uh, so really, I started up the, the idea of the book would be about those 15. And then because I wanted to mimic the class as much as possible, I also wanted to put the full text of the story in the book. So that brought me down to about seven. Uh, and, you know, they're really wonderful stories. I'd say my favorite stories aren't in the book, like um, The Overcoat, uh, Lady with Pet Dog, Death of Ivan Illich. But, so these were maybe like the kind of you know, A minus stories, although, you know, a Chekhov A minus story is an A triple plus for anybody else. Yeah, the but, lady so with a pet dog is A minus. Uh, Nabokov called it the greatest story ever written. <laughs> 
Which one was that? The, uh, the lady with the pet dog, uh, the, the, the Chekhov I, I, story. I agree with him, yeah. No, that would be an A-plus story, but I left it out of the book for that reason because those things, you just sort of have to praise them. And what I wanted to do with this book was just kind of have, you know, in a way it's like story morgue. You want to have a, a story on the slab. Maybe it's not perfect, and then you can kind of feel free to move it around and investigate it a little bit. I'd love to talk with you about craft, but talk about the truth of fiction. Um, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that and reflect on it for a moment, because I think it's something that you get to the heart of in your book and that certainly both of us probably have reflected on a good deal. The truth that comes to us through fiction, which itself is a lie. <laughs> right, right. Well, one of the things that I, I came upon in the book that I thought was interesting was that, you know, when I, when I say to you, uh, Michael, once upon a time, you know you're you're primed you're 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 willing to hear me out but but hovering over that moment is your uh sense of what of the way the world actually works so if i say once upon a time i walked across a field of freshly cut grass and it smelled as it always does like kerosene something in you goes wait a minute wait a minute that isn't true i don't believe that and and our our relationship is sundered a little bit you you know you're I had my arm around your shoulders walking you through Storyland, and when I said that thing that doesn't jive with your experience, you pulled away from me a little bit. So we could understand uh, particularly made-up stories as being this continu continual referendum on truth, by which I mean our mutual sense of how things are in the world. Um, so in that way, you know, a, a writer like Tolstoy, for example, one of his superpowers is he is just really good at observing and remembering and expressing the way things mostly feel for us and i would argue that he uses it a little bit like a you know the way a carnival barker uses his pitch he every time we're about to go off and do something else tolstoy says something about the world with which we agree and that pulls us back in into the mix and that of course allows him to gradually lead us up the mountain to his his deep philosophical things but you know it's one of the sort of storytelling 101 things is why do i keep listening to you and one of the things is to be truthful and 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 a sort of side room of that is to be specific. Yeah, I'm struck by your use of the word superpowers, which you use in your book as well. And it does uh, figure that our lives can be improved and we can actually brought, be brought together by literature. And if you want to join, join us with George Saunders, again, the number to call is 866-733-6786. Here's Pat in Corte Madera. Pat, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thanks very much. I'm actually just pulling off the road, so I won't be driving and talking at the same time. Good. Um, I am very interested in Tolstoy. I had a very sporadic uh, education as well, but Russian authors fell into my lap somewhere in my 20s. And Tolstoy somewhere wrote about the importance of living healthily, meaning that instead of just getting exercise, you know, just a walk or just a run, that you find a way to make that energy work for somebody else. It was a little like the Dalai Lama's, you know, you have to give mm. in order to receive. And I'm wondering if, uh, Mr. Saunders, if you know where Tolstoy wrote about that, because I would love to read more. And I've looked and, and haven't really been able to find it. No, you know, that's a beautiful idea, and I, I have never heard that before, so thank you for telling me. Uh, my guess is that it would be in some of those philosophical writings he did toward the end of his life where he, he kind of, you know, swore off of fiction and was developing a, a method for living. But that, that's very uh, 
Interesting. It, it's also interesting, you know, there's a, there's a part in the book, I quote uh, a diary entry from his wife, and it sounded like, at least with respect to her, he wasn't taking his own advice so much. She's got a, a very long list of um, uh, complaints about him that sound like her life was pretty rough. So one of the things we take up in the book is this question of, you know, you can have um, Tolstoy as a writing role model. You can also have Tolstoy as a life role model. Uh, but those two things, for weird reasons, tend to be tend to be kind of separate. But I love that advice. That's really lovely. Yeah. Does it matter that uh, Tolstoy was a fairly devout Christian, or does it matter that you, for that matter, are a Buddhist uh, when considering the work and dealing with it and engaging with it? I, I don't think so, because what I, you know, with Tolstoy, there's two stories in this book where he looks at the moment of death. And there's, of course, the great uh, death of Ivan Illich, which isn't in the book, where he does the same thing. And what I noticed is that, you know, he was a very devout Christian, and that meant different things for him at different times of his life. But the beauty of the craft of fiction, I think, is that when you find somebody like Tolstoy, who's such a master, he almost can't lie uh, in his stories. He can have a, a strong agenda that he wants to express. Maybe he starts out wanting to express that. But in the heat of the moment, when he's actually writing the story, he has a... Um, uh, well, well, Hemingway had a name for it, but it's a, a, it's a crap detector, basically. You know, he, he, he could tell when his prose was becoming false, and he just wouldn't let it go there. So at the end of this story, Master and Man, there's a beautiful description of a conversion experience. And certainly, I think Tolstoy would say he's a, the character is experiencing God. But in his descriptions, they're so specific and clinical that they're almost biological, uh, so I think he, he somehow, at the moment of truth, he keeps himself somewhat agenda-free, and, uh, and it's the craft that actually uh, helps him do that. Let me read a comment from a listener named Richard who writes, I bought Lincoln and the Bardo during the time when I was traveling between San Francisco and Boston to help my dad during his last months of life as a history buff and the son of a dying man who, because of his service during World War II, was himself a witness to many soul-searing events. I found your book very moving at a very trying time in my life. Thank you, and I greatly look forward to your latest book. And here's a caller. Alex joins us from Sonoma. Alex, oh, you're thank on. you so much for th thank you for that. Yeah, hi. Thanks for for the interesting conversation. I I had a question. Um, how much priming or guidance or education do we need in order to really appreciate what's in deep? thinkers and writers like these Russians. And I asked this question because I just spent four years studying classical art under a Russian master in Italy. And one of the shocking things I found was how much I was missing um, that's kind of under the surface mm -hmm. in the visual arts. I wonder if that's true also in literature for the Russians. George? What a, what a great question. Yeah, yeah that's, great question. that's exactly right. I, I think, um, yeah, I think... Um, Let's see. I guess the, I, I'm with you on that. I, I am amazed, even at this advanced age, how much I've missed in literature and how, how much I haven't read. And I'll go back to a story that I think I know and find out that it has depths I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand. I think um, one of my ideas is if we've taken the basic maintenance step of reading as widely as we can, doing our best, you know, to try to, to not be a know-nothing, you know, then um, I think we, and especially if we've read... Uh, establish ourselves in a certain lineage of writers that we love and we've read energetically in those people then i think we have to assume that our that we're okay we've got what we need especially since we've all lived you know we all have some uh, working knowledge of life that we've probably acquired at great cost then what we do is we come up to a masterpiece with our hat in our hands and kind of say i'd like to approach 
All I have to offer you is my sincere reaction. I hope that's good enough. The masters, uh, certainly in Tolstoy and Chekhov, say, sure, come on in. I'm just writing about people. Then we approach, and then we see what the, the work of art does to us. Uh, and that's, for me, that's the whole start of criticism. Does it inflect you? Does it affect you? Does it make you irritated or pissed off or, or cry? Um, then analysis is just try to understand why it did that. But I think most of this takes place on a, a visceral level. Uh, um, it's, it can be conceptual, but mostly we, I think we do have what we need uh, because we've lived. I, that would be my answer. At, at the same time, for me, my answer is hurry up and read more. Hurry up and try to understand deeper because the time is short. And I'm glad you brought that into the picture as well. Let me ask you about writing for a moment and the craft, because uh, there was an essay you did where you talked about finding your voice, and you, you used this uh, one of your inimitable uh, metaphors about uh, sending out a hunting dog after a pheasant, uh, and it brings back the lower half of a Barbie doll in terms of actually finding the right voice and the voice that's authentic and that suits you. Any words of wisdom and, and advice from the standpoint of... Uh, a writer who has certainly made his mark in terms of that. Well, I th I, I think the um, you know Flannery O'Connor has a great line. She says something like, "A writer can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live." So that's a really interesting mantra. If we say, "Well, I, I want to be like Cormac McCarthy," or "I want to be like Toni Morrison," uh, the world will say, "Well, that's nice that you want to be that, but who are you? You know, what do you?" what do you have to offer uniquely? And that's really the writer's or the artist's uh, very, very difficult journey. What do I have that nobody else has? Or uh, how can I advance the cause of art in my little tiny way? Um, so that, uh, in a certain way, we can write in many, many different ways, as we all know. But some of them uh, have more energy than others. People respond to them more more authentically. And I think I write in the book about the kind of bittersweet moment where you realize that the writer that makes the prose live might not be the one you've been aspiring to be. And so for me, I, you know, I wanted to be Hemingway, maybe James Joyce, you know, whatever. Uh, but I couldn't do it. And when I, and when I finally gave up and started being funny, being a little bit irreverent, uh, the energy spiked in, in the work. So it was exciting because I was not getting any younger and we had two kids and the, the ship of art was sailing without me. But it was also a little bit disappointing because I would I took that first story that I got published and I compared it to so many great ones and I felt that it wasn't really even playing the same game. But as I say in the book, that's where you, I think you have to start. If you're lucky enough to have that kind of breakthrough, then you have to kind of double down on it and hope that in time, what you're doing will grow and will be somewhat in the in the vicinity of those masterpieces. But it's it's a in some ways it's a character test because we have to say, will I accept the version of myself that's pure and energetic and and uh, speaks to people, or will I suppress that one in favor of this kind of theoretical idea of who I want to be? Talking again with George Saunders about his new book and about writing and reading. The book is called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. It comes from the Gooseberry Story by. Chekhov, and I uh, wanted to read a comment from Patricia. You're getting a lot of uh, comments about Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, George's last novel. Patricia writes, I am both a teacher for more than 40 years and a hospice volunteer for almost 20. Lincoln and the Bardo so deeply moved me. Your treatment of grief, the shattering of the soul, and loss was profound. Life does go on, as was necessary for Lincoln. We can study death, but we do not know what this transition will be. Thank you for your exquisite writing. I also so greatly appreciate your commencement address, naming kindness to all as simple but so meaningful. 
Can we talk about that for a moment, George? Uh, the important, we've talked about it with you before, but the importance of kindness, uh, which came up again with Ellen DeGeneres, <laughs> who used to sign off with kindness and then uh, yeah. set a kind of toxic atmosphere, at least allegedly. Uh, where, but it, it's important to many people. And uh, kindness of strangers and all that, Blanche Dubois, uh, it's important in life. Why? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think we all know that we should be kind. And what's interesting to me is this kind of continuing development of what does that mean exactly? You know, it, I mean, when I was younger, it just meant being nice, never, never objecting, you know, always being calm. And as you get older, you see that that's not actually necessarily true. You could be enabling somebody who's not so nice. So for me now, and, and writing this book actually advanced this understanding, um, kindness is, is sort of uh, somehow related to awareness, uh, alertness. So in a given situation, in order to know what the kind thing, i.e. I, the, the thing that would benefit somebody else might be, you kind of have to know what, where you are. You have to know what the situation is. And that's where I find myself lacking. Um, I've got a kind of a really energetic monkey mind, uh, a good deal of anxiety, and probably uh, a feeling of, you know, not, not of low self-worth. So in a moment of uh, potential kindness, when I should be having a quiet mind and observing what's going on so that I could do the kindest thing, I find that I'm often distracted by that haze, that mental haze that I've made for myself. So uh, I guess I just say it's a, the commencement of speech was sort of a, the, the beginnings of that. And as I'm looking into it, it's becoming the issue in life. How, how, how can we be kind? How can we uh, alter our minds so that it's in a more loving state? And, uh, you know, I just turned 62 this year and I'm realizing, oh, geez, it, it, that takes a long time. That takes a lot of work, and I'm not really that much closer to it than I was when I was 40. Um, so, yeah, I think I think kindness is a gateway to almost every, uh, you know, important question we could ask, if it's understood in in an advanced enough way. And you are getting a lot of uh, testament from listeners about not only Lincoln and Lombardo, but other work. Mike writes, uh, you were talking about finding your voice in terms of uh, your humor vein. Mike writes, I happen to pick up pastorally uh, uh, and... Pastor Ali, excuse me, on this past election night, as things were turning grim, I found myself reading late into the night, often nearly laughing out loud. Mr. Saunders has an amazing sense of humor that completely surprised me. And again, this listener, Mike, thanks you. And here's oh. Jameso as our next caller. Good morning, Jameso. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, James O, just because there are James a lot of Jameses in the world, but there's only one James O, <laughs> Osborne. Um, and I really enjoy your discussion. I I'm, admire both of you. But George, um, I really only know you through your discussions and your writing for Jeff Tweedy and, and Wilco, and, um, and, and that made me think about th these two forms of art, you know, literature and, and music, um, and I love both. Uh, I love the fiction of Shaban, for instance. I love the nonfiction of Rebecca Solnit, um, but really, I don't have enough time to read everything I'd like to read, and that makes means even less time to write, but I can just listen to Wilco and, and I don't watch his show, and like you, I, I think it comes to something about comfort and, and kindness, but how do you divide your time? <laughs> James, let me jump in here because we've got seconds left, the music is already coming up. Uh, George, talk about dividing time, uh, unfortunately, quickly if you could. 
Sure, I, I basically don't. I'm very bad at it. I just love to write. And for me, that is the most, uh, in my artistic life, the most urgent thing. So I just put that overwhelmingly at the front. And any time I have left, I, I just uh, fill it in with other things. It, you know, it's, I'm a little obsessed. So for me, it's not really a, uh, a question, especially as, as life goes by and the number of writing hours ahead of me diminishes. Well, please continue writing as long as you can. And always good to have you. Thank you so much for being with us. George Sunday's book, again, is A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And form is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, Raquel Maria Dillon, and Caroline Smith, and Grace Wan. Please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.